Welcome back, everybody. This is Weight Loss and the Mind. Think fit, be fit. I'm your host, Scott Patton, and we're back on the air after a couple years hiatus. It's uh, been quite a ride. Sorry uh, we've been out of touch, but uh, we're back, and uh, we've got a brand new co-host that I'm going to be introducing to you in a moment. He's, uh, I think you're going to be pretty excited. He's uh, he's famous. <laughs> he's uh, got his own Martha Stewart show. He's been on Fox and NBC, and the Washington Times has interviewed him, along with the New York Post and the San Francisco Chronicle and the Wall Street Journal. Oh, my goodness, he's been in Entrepreneur Magazine and L, and he's got his own uh, radio show. Uh, he's a best-selling author, and uh, if you need to uh, get into peak performance, he's the man. And so he's, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, how to uh, get that gray matter between your ears working the right way, and maybe a little bit on nutrition and a little bit on some actual exercises that you might uh, want to try. And I've still been going to hot yoga. <laughs> Those of you that have been following us. <laughs> and, and and I'm up to about two or three times on average per week, and it's just been absolutely awesome. So I'm excited. This is a new era for weight loss in the mind. I think it's 3.0, and I want you to join me in welcoming my new co-host, John M. Rowley. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. I do not have a show on Martha Stewart's. I am a regular on her show. A regular I don't, on her I don't show. Ha- I wish I had a show. And if she's listening, Martha, I want one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just going to have to. Uh, we're just going to have to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. So you you were a college athlete, and you just about. Uh, you just about uh, punched your ticket in when you had a car accident, eh? <laughs> yeah, I was 19. It was a summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and I was working full-time for my dad, which full-time was about 60 to 70 hours a week because I would work weekends and all as a janitor. My father ran New York City Public Schools. So I would oh, do that, and we, and we always had – my father was good. He always had Olympic-bound athletes working with me. So what we would do is we would work hard in the morning. At lunchtime, we would go train in the weight room or run somewhere, and then we would work the afternoon. And then after that, we would go to one of the local tracks and we'd train. And then after that, we'd normally go back to my garage. I had a full weight room in my garage, and we'd, I'd train again. And then I'd have some dinner, and then I'd go out at night with my friends Well, last Two weeks before going back to Kansas, I was, went to college in Kansas, I really started burning the candle at both ends. I was going out a lot at nights, you know, not drinking and partying, but just really just seeing friends I hadn't seen all summer. I wasn't going to see them for another year or so because I was going back to college, and it was an Olympic year, and, you know, my, my sights were on the 1980 Olympics. Whether I made it or not was a different story, but that's what my sights were. So just went out to the movies one night to see the original Star Wars and my dad said, John, you're burning the candle at both ends. Why don't you stay home tonight? And I said, you know what, Dad? I'm just going to go to the movie and come right back. I should have listened to him. When I was driving back from the movie, I fell asleep behind the wheel. And uh, they said that when I fell asleep, I probably gunned the car, but I was awake enough with my eyes open to steer. Because I wasn't going fast. In fact, I was slowing down at a light. What the last thing I remember. But I hit this tree that said anywhere between 90 and 100 miles an hour. Wow. And Ouch. The, the front tire was in the trunk. That's how bad it was on the driver's side. And my right hand, when all was said and done, my right hand was back by my elbow. Left side of my body from the hip down was crushed. And my foot was, my foot was 
it didn't look like a foot. It had a huge hole through it. Uh, meat was all torn off. My my face was pretty badly scarred from flames, and um, my ribs were all broken. Every one of my ribs were broke. My breastbone was split in a half by three and a half inches, and my nose was completely severed from my face. So when people tell me that they have some challenges in their life, I always tell them, if you've got a nose stuck to your face, you're, you're leap, you uh, leaps and bounds ahead of me, you know? But what, wow. happened from there, yeah, what happened from there was is the recovery process, which I think was even more important than the devastating accident because the recovery process for me was, you know, you always hear about fight or flight. You know, people give up yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And giving up never entered my mind. And as soon as I was able to, I was in a walker walking around trying to walk. My goal every day was an extra step. Mm-hmm. And... Um, until I finally made it outside, then it was an extra crack on the sidewalk. And after a while, I was getting around well enough where I asked my dad, I said, could you get me a job in one of the schools? He goes, John, like this, I was on a walker. I, had, I, I couldn't use my left arm, my right arm, and I couldn't use my left leg. And breathing was very difficult because of my ribs and breastbone, my, mainly my, brace, my breastbone at that point. Finally, he gets me a job working at nights when nobody would see me. The custodian engineer, who was a friend of my family's, Joe Darcy, in his heavy Irish accent, says, he goes, I don't care what you do. He goes, I don't care if you have to work 20 hours, but you've got to get the same work done for them, and I'm only paying you for eight. And he was a loving guy, though. <laughs> but he wanted to let me know, we're not taking it easy on you. Well, right. after the first week, he comes up to me. He goes, by God, he goes, I don't know how you do it. He goes, you've got one arm and one leg. You're ugly to top it off, and you're out working everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> But what I did is I put a I put a um, broken music stand that was getting thrown out. I put that on my walker because I was going so slow I was boring myself. And I started reading Zig Ziglar books and I started reading books on uh, physiology and bodybuilding and things like this. And as a kid growing up, I had a very difficult time learning. In fact, my teachers told me I was learning disabled, that I would never learn right and I would never go to college or probably shouldn't even go to high school. But what I found out was was when I was up and moving around reading with that walker, after a few days, I finally realized I'm reading better and I'm retaining thousand times more than I ever did before. Mm. So that was one thing I learned during that period. But the second thing I learned during that period, I didn't learn it during that period. I, I executed it during that period. Is I realized, I was laying in my room. My room was a shrine to my career. I was one of the top runners in the world. So I had trophies and medals and ribbons and clippings and things framed all over my wall. You couldn't find another spot on my wall that, didn't, that wasn't a testimony to the hard work that I put in as an athlete. And it was all done out of love for my parents. But I'm sitting in my room day after day looking at this crap. And finally, once I was able to get mobile and my parents were able to go back to work every day, a little bit at a time, I threw it out. Now, as a 52-year-old guy, I wish I had it now to show my kids and grandkids. But back then, I realized the only way I was going to be able to succeed in life and achieve in life was to not look backwards because I was never running again. And so I so threw it So you were a college athlete who was a runner? Yes. I ran the 400 and 800, meter, 400 and 800 meters. In fact, I've got a funny story about that. My very first track meet of my college career, I had run every, every very big uh, high school track meet you could think of, you know, all over the place. 
But my very first one, I got out to college, and I had a note at my dorm room when I got there that I was invited to a invitational meet at KU, at Kansas University, which was about two hours from where I was. So I went down and found a couple of New York guys that were on the track team with me. I said, listen, I got invited to this thing. Anybody else get invited? Nobody else got invited. I was the only one in the school who got invited to the, to the meet, but I had a couple of guys that had cars that wanted to go to go anyway. And I said, it's great because we'd be all world-class athletes there. So I was able to get a ride there. They waited the whole day. We had a really good day. We actually spent the night there. But uh, if they didn't drive me there, I had no way of getting there. Well, I get there. And I knew a lot of the athletes because I knew them from high school. You know, I was running varsity as a freshman in high school. So even though these guys were older than me, I had run all against them all and had beaten them all. So we're looking at eight or ten guys on the track. And there's one guy, he looked a little bit older. I'm kind of joking with everybody. I said, I'm in college. Now you guys may as well go home. I said, because the race is over before we even start. And everybody kind of chuckled except for this one older guy. I knew I recognized him, so I looked at him, and I said, well, I hope you took your Geritol today, and I expect them to laugh, and he didn't. Then they announced the names. They announced my name, and then they announced his name. His name was Edward Moses. Wow. He was one of the top Olympians in history and a phenomenal athlete and a phenomenal man on top of it. But I had no idea who it was. I looked at him, and then he smiled. <laughs> I told him, I said, I wish I, would, I, could, I could eat those words right now. That's and he, right. And he, he just laughed. He didn't say anything. He didn't belittle me or anything. Well, they get us down. We started out of the blocks. Back then, very few people who were in the 400 started out of the blocks, but I was one of them, and so was Edwin. And my only thought in my head was, he's in a gnome in the race. So what I did is I went out as hard as I could. And we got to about, you break it about, the, you stay in your lane until about the halfway mark. So we break. And he's right behind me when we break. We're going into the turn, and then he's right on my he's right on my right hand shoulder. And there's maybe about 180 yards left in the race. And he goes, he goes, kid, you're strong. And he goes, relax your arms a little bit. That's going to get you to tie up a little bit. He goes, relax your jaw too. This way you don't tie up. He goes, but stay loose. He goes, man. He goes, you are one strong cat. And he's kind of like he's talking to you as you're running. Oh yeah, and I'm talking. We're running. Now we get onto the straightaway, which now there's only like maybe 60 or 80 yards left. And he goes, just so you know, we're at world record pace. And I, and I just listened. I was staying focused on what I was doing, but I was taking everything in he was saying. We get about 10 yards from the finish line, and he goes, he goes you're a nice guy, but I, I do have some pride, and i got to go. And he takes off, so he beats me by, by, by about nine yards. <laughs> he beat me by reality. So by, the reality is he's off for a Sunday stroll with you chatting away. And, <laughs> okay, I guess we got to go here. Bye. <laughs> yeah, he actually beat me by about two or three-tenths of a second. Um, he could have beat me by more, I think. Uh, we did not break a world record, but we were we we ran. Actually, it was my fastest time ever. Yeah. And when he told me later, we ended up having dinner with him. He told me later, he goes, "That's actually one of his fastest times as well." Oh, cool. And uh, so that was, you know, that was my I, what, yeah, that was my college career. And then I got a job as a janitor after the accident. Worked hard, and I didn't see any other options. I started going to college at night. And I wasn't a good student to begin with. And without the use of my right arm or my left leg, it made it even more difficult and embarrassing. So I, what I did is I, I started taking union classes. And I was actually making very good money as a janitor. It wasn't like a typical janitor in any other part of the United States. In New York City, these guys who work for this union do pretty well. So, And it was advancement opportunities. So I took, started taking uh, stationary and refrigeration engineering classes and locksmith classes, glazing classes. I took every class they had, and I started advancing rapidly. By the time I was probably 23, 
I was working as an, as an apprentice engineer in, in a boiler room with high-pressure boilers. So fast forward a couple of years, I kind of was ready for the next step, which would have been taking the city exam and becoming a custodian engineer like my dad, but I knew that's not what I wanted. Mm. So I went in and I started interviewing at every real estate company in Manhattan. And I interviewed at probably about 300, 300 or 200, you know, whatever. I lost count, but everywhere. And everybody gave me the same answer. You're too young. You have no experience and you have no college. Go get your college degree. Get 20 years of experience in the outer boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx. We don't care where. And then when you're in your 40s, come back. Oh, great. Well, well, the thing is, reality is in Manhattan real estate, you don't see anybody under 40. So, you know, and 40 is the young guy. Like when the young guy comes in, he's 42, 43. That's the young guy. So I didn't listen to him. I just kept interviewing. And finally, I got in front of one guy. He gave me the same speech. And I said, listen, I've already been turned down by a couple hundred companies. And I said, I'm not stopping until I get a job. I said, let me ask you something with an honest answer. Do you have anybody working for you right now that would be doing what I'm doing right now? He goes, no. Second question, do you want me competing against you? He goes, no. And he goes, Third question, can yeah. you run fast? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't run at that point because that was after the accident. And he goes, uh, start Monday. So I started Monday and quickly found out I did not know that business at all. I was asked to do the minutes for 7 Parky Avenue, which that, I had about 20 buildings, but 7 Parky Avenue was my turning point. It was owned by Harry and Leon Helmsley. And it was one of my managing properties, and it was run like crap. It, was, it looked awful. And, um, and it used to be a premier building. So I went in there for the first board meeting, my very first board night at work. And my boss, Mr. Harris, tells me, he goes, John, just keep your mouth shut. Don't let them know that you don't know anything. Just do the minutes. I'm like, sure, no problem. So I sat through the meeting. I got along with everybody well. The president of the board was the president of American Express. And everybody liked me. I liked them. So next morning at work, Mr. Harris shouts across to my Madison Avenue office, uh, Mr. Rowley, can you have the minutes on my desk within an hour? I said, I can do better than that. I can have them for you right now. He goes, uh, what do you mean? I said, 72 minutes, Mr. Harris. He just chuckled, walked into his office, got him on my desk in an hour. You're a card. You're going to lighten it up around here. We need some young people around here. My secretary comes storming into my office. Linda was her name. Leans over, slams my door, leans over my desk like a pit bull. And she goes, you don't know what minutes are, do you? She said, well, I'm assuming by your rosy personality is not timing the meeting. She goes, no, it's the corporate records of the corporation. They can't get financing. They can't do anything. It's imperative. That's the most important part of your job. And I said, listen, the way I see it, you've got two choices. You can go in and wrap me out, tell them I don't know anything, and they're going to fire me. Because they think I don't know anything anyway, but they don't think I know this little. I said, or <laughs> you can help me do the minutes, and I guarantee you this year will be very exciting. But if you don't help, you're going to be very go, exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to end up go working for one of these boring guys from Harvard, Wharton, or Yale that knows what they're doing. And where's the excitement in that? And she goes, I think I'm retarded. But all right, let's sit down and do the minutes. So we did it. And what happened was I realized that week, this was a Monday, that I was not going to survive and thrive in Manhattan real estate based on my corporate real estate knowledge. So what I decided to do is I befriended myself to the, to the um, controller who was a head of the accounting. And I had him start working on me with how to read financial statements. Then I went in and I paid the cleaning lady to let me in some of the offices at night when nobody was there. And I took the. I found out who did the best, best minutes in the company, 
And I went in and I photocopied um, several copies of their minutes for various buildings. Then I also went into their files and found out found letters that, I had, that, that they had written. And I copied all those. And I made myself a training manual. And what happened was on Friday, I was like, okay, i got to do something. i got to be proactive. Seven Park Avenue was a mess. So I arranged for my staff to meet me at Seven Park Avenue, every one of them. I was giving them all overtime to work with me from midnight until late in the morning. I taught them how to buff the floors, how to polish the brass, how to clean the glass, how to clean the wallpaper, get the carpets clean, how to, how to make sure that the boilers were running efficiently so we weren't burning oil, to make sure the elevators were working right so I didn't have to bring in outside elevator guys to spend a fortune on that type of stuff. And what happened was, was the next morning people started waking up and they started saying, what happened? And the superintendent and all my staff said, well, crazy young guy. He's our new property manager. He can't be 30. And he came in last night and showed us what to do. Well, I got a call from Harry Helmsley's office to find out what was going on. One of the property managers over there. So I told him. He said, well, that's pretty impressive. And I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to meet Mr. Helmsley. And uh, he goes, oh, you're not meeting Mr. Helmsley. So I called back, found out from the front desk person what her name was. And I said, I'm supposed to meet Harry later. I said, what's his secretary's name again? So she tells me. Within an hour, I was up at his office, walked in. Walked past the lady at the front desk, used her name. She thought I belonged there. Walked past Harry's secretary. She thought I belonged there. Closed and locked the door. I said, Mr. Helmsley, I'm the one running 7 Park Avenue. (laughs) And I got to know him. But what happened was because I was focusing on my strengths, which was the knowledge of a building, not the knowledge of all the other things that I was supposed to do, I stood out. And I think that's an important lesson for a lot of people to learn today because a lot of people want to be like everybody else. Well, sometimes you just don't have a choice. And a lot of times when you don't have a choice to be like everybody else, you've got to, you got to focus on your strengths, which I've done my whole career. Yeah, John, you make a really, really good point there because we're very good at being ourselves. We're really bad at being other people unless you're an actor, right? And, exactly. And, and even actors would say that they're actually just finding that part of themselves. It's that character. And I can remember early on in my uh, speaking career before I got up in front of anybody and uh, the company I was with hired a speaking coach. And I was really worried because I'd done a number of presentations and uh, people kind of laughed. They got it. Their light bulbs were going off and all the rest of it. And I was afraid that he was going to ask me to totally change uh, who who I was when I was up in front of the room. And I was so relieved when he said, you know, he said, Scott, we want you to be more of who you are. So I can see who, you know, as I've watched you, I can see, you know, who you are, but you're not, you're not, you need, you're like 50% of who you are instead of 100%. We want you to be more of who you are, <laughs> which of course I then had to learn what that was. But I was just, what a relief, right? It was like, oh, I can just be myself. Yeah, we don't want you to, to be Tony Robbins. And we don't want you to be John Rowley. And we don't want you to be, you know, anybody else. We want you to be you. Well, that's and, what Zig Ziglar told me early on. He goes, if you try to be Zig Ziglar, you'll be a second-rate Zig Ziglar. Yeah. But focusing on, focus on who you are. And then also, when I started doing media, I was working with 5WPR Manhattan. I was working with Ron Terosian. And I asked Ron, I had so many people in the media saying I needed to go for media training. And I said, Ron, do I need to go for some kind of media training? He goes, screw them. He goes, you got a great personality. He goes, you go out there and be you. This way you'll stand out. He goes, don't listen to anybody about media training. So it made me a little nervous because during the same meeting I was in with Ron, he had this roundtable thing and there was a dentist who was supposed to go on the air. 
And somebody, she was really nervous. Somebody <laughs> told her, have a couple of shots before you go on and you'll be fine. I'm thinking to myself, Ron's telling me to be myself. Somebody else is telling her to do a couple of shots so she relaxed. But, you know, and I was doing my first national Fox appearance that day. So I go, I walk across, you know, a few blocks over to Fox, and the producer comes up to me, and he didn't know who I was at first, and he goes, he just asked me a question about what I was going to do or whatever, and then I, and then I had said, listen, let me ask you a question. He goes, what's that? What's that? And um, the question, the question was, I said, what do I need to do today so I can get invited back? And in typical Manhattan style, he got right in my face. He goes, don't suck. <laughs> I'm like, oh. He goes, you got two minutes not to suck. I was getting two minutes. So I go out there. The lady who's getting ready to interview me recognized me because she used to live in one of my buildings and read my book. And she goes, John, blah, blah, blah. And then the producer goes, you know him? She goes, yeah, he's really good friends with Keith. He goes, Keith Abloh? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, he goes Are you, you're Keith Abloh's friend, the fitness guy? And I said, yeah. He goes, get that sports jacket off. Because we're in a sports jacket. I said, Why? He goes, because you need to look different than everybody else. Keith said, you'll be fantastic on TV. And he goes, and he tells the person interviewing me, she goes, listen, he's got two minutes. If I give you the sign, just keep going. So my first appearance on Fox News turned in from two minutes to 20 minutes. Wow. I had a full, I had a full 20 minutes. And they actually would have went longer, but they had people waiting. And it was simply because I was myself. I didn't try to be somebody else. And I think that's I think that's an important lesson. And you know, I was in business. I was in Manhattan real estate. And I got to tell you, looking back, I can't tell the difference from one of the guys I worked with to the other. Yeah, they're close. very few of them. Yeah, but because I was different, like my first my first year in the business, I ended up becoming very very good friends with Barbara Corcoran. She owned the Corcoran Group. She's on the TV show now called Shark Tank. She's one of the sharks, mm-hmm. star sharks. Barbara endorses endorses each of my books, but. I met her when I was in my 20s, and she ended up becoming one of my best friends. We met for breakfast for years in the morning. We started off every day and it fizzled down to a couple times a week. But she continues to be a very good friend of mine and a role model to mine. But the reason I got friendly with her was because I was different. I didn't handle her the way everybody else handled me. She finally asked me one day on the phone, she goes, she goes, who do you think you are? I said, well, I know who I am. She goes, who's that? I said, I am the absolute best at what I do in Manhattan real estate. And you'll find out very soon that I am. She goes, how do you say that? And I said, because everybody else here went to Harvard, Wharton, and Yale. And they look at their life. If they're getting an A on everything, they go, well, they're board meetings and everything's going smooth. They get A's and everything, then everything's status quo. I said, I'm not burdened by that. I said, I'm going to come in here, do things differently, find out what works, what doesn't work, and I'm going to change things. I said, because a lot of things that, that are in these companies do not work. She goes, hmm, you want to have breakfast tomorrow? I said, okay. <laughs> and we ended up becoming very good friends. In fact, we tried buying companies together for, for a couple of years. And I wish we would have because it would have been a different thing. Right. But anyway, that's, my, that's, my, that's my, my, my brief story spread out over a long period of time. <laughs> very, very cool. We're uh, actually running out of time. It's just flown by. And, uh, and I think that, but I think the real takeaway from today is you know, be yourself and – if you do what everybody else is doing, you're, you're going to get uh, results that maybe you're not so happy with. And I think when it comes to fitness and weight loss, absolutely, if we do what everybody else is doing, which is eat the McDonald's hamburgers and uh, 
you know, drink the beer and all the rest of it, don't exercise, watch TV <laughs> all the time, uh, we're going to get what everybody else is, which is an epidemic of obesity. So I think uh, you've given us a whole pile of clues as to uh, what's required to be successful, and I'm looking forward to uh, digging into all this a lot deeper in the future, John. I am too, and the name of the show is Weight Lost in the Mind, and that's where most of it takes place. Most of it doesn't take place in the gym, so I'm looking forward to taking, taking on those, uh, those uh, questions as well. Right. So if you want to know more about John Rowley, head over to www.peakperformancelifestyle.com. Uh, he's got his own blog talk radio, so you can ask him questions there, read through his stuff, get his book, Power of Positive Fitness, and I think probably next time we're going to talk about uh, the old school, new body, uh, the new program that you're going to be coming out, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I am before, too, and I appreciate it. Before we go, John, any last words of uh, wisdom? No, I just think this is going to be good. Scott's having various co-hosts that represent different areas that are going to help you. And I really encourage you to listen in, listen in on a regular basis because there's going to be a lot of wisdom, a lot of different things on here that you may not have thought of, and I really think it's going to help transform your life. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, John. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We really appreciate you, and we're uh, dedicated to doing this on a regular basis, if not a very, very regular basis uh, moving forward. I'm Scott Patton. You've been listening to Weight Loss and the Mind, www.freeweightlosspodcast.com. And tell your friends about it. We're back on the air and excited to be with you. Bye-bye.